the people that you're dealing with, which camp are these people in? And then you have to navigate those sorts of different camps. People are driven by one of two things, fear or greed. Like those are the two kind of key motivational drivers within a business. Either people do things because they do it out of fear or they do it because they're greedy. Not yeah. neither of those things is a bad thing, but that are the two of the kind of the emotions. So often figuring out what someone is, like are they driven by fear? Are they driven by greed? What is it? And then play to that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 10 of the 30 something podcast. So today's episode is a wee bit different. I did a Zoom interview. Now, normally I would try and avoid doing things on Zoom. I quite like doing the podcast with people. I feel like when you're in front of them, it's a bit better with communication. I don't know, maybe I'm old fashioned, but just the face-to-face -face for me can't really be replaced. So this is likely the only one we'll ever do on Zoom. But the reason I didn't wait this time around is because time is of the essence because our guest Callie Russell is the founder of Malsey which is the tinder of fashion but as we get into it you'll find out it's so much more. They have started a new project which I won't go into too much detail here but what a lot of people won't have thought about with everything that's going on with retail and coronavirus is there's a lot of stock in factories across the world and the workers won't be getting paid for it because the retailers dropped it and Callie and the team at Malsey have started a new venture to help get some much needed funds to these workers. So in this episode, as always, we cover Callie's background, his experience, his business lessons, how important it is to tell a good story, how important it is to build relationships, long-term relationships with people, to what Malsey is, how it's developed over the years, and then just some general life lessons. And then we talk about the venture I mentioned called Lost Stock. So, if you like this episode, as always, please subscribe. Go follow the Instagram page at 30-something interviews. Thanks as always for listening. Callie, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Johnny. Yeah, pleasure. So, how's everything going in lockdown? Yeah, it's fine actually. I think I think lockdown and the kind of the whole sort of coronavirus thing is kind of like a lot of the stages of grief where you kind of everyone starts off with like kind of panic and kind of stress and like you're kind of going through all sorts of things, you go into anger, you go into denial, you do all these sorts of points, and then you kind of get into this page where you're kind of like, right, if this is just how the world is gonna be now, how do we deal in this world? How do we operate in this world? And then you start to kind of adjust both life and business like accordingly to kind of to kind of fit in within that seven weeks in would you say you're fully adjusted or uh i don't think i'm fully adjusted like there's loads of things that i definitely miss uh but one of the things that i kind of have kind of always found in everything that we've done is i'm not a big believer of being angry or annoyed or upset about things that you have no control over like if you don't have control over something as a situation then what's the point in in kind of getting hot like kind of all stuck into it so with all of this it's been kind of quite calm in terms of like let's figure out the best ways to kind of do it so you know at week seven point you know we've got to the stage now where we've got a couple of different things now running and operating within our business which are kind of you know potentially really really you know really interesting as opportunities and, and a potentially really big impact and we're now you know really well set up for kind of you know working from home all these sorts of things as a tech company in a retail space that bit's actually pretty easy like we use slack anyway we use zoom you know we've got employees down south anyway so it just it worked quite easy to kind of just move into that sort of mode 
That's good. So we've obviously crossed paths quite a few times, both working in retail. Mm. But for anybody who's listening, can you just give a wee brief sort of history and your background, where you started, where the idea from Malsey kind of came on, and for people who don't know what exactly it is? Cool. Well, let's start exactly with, with what it is that we do. So Malsey is a B to C to B business. You know, that often when I say that, people kind of look at me going like, that sounds a bit crazy. And it is a little bit crazy. In reality, what we do is that we run a consumer shopping app called Malsey, which is basically Tinder for clothes. That consumer shopping app is now the UK's biggest kind of fashion aggregator. And we've got about 1.5 million consumers. And we have about 180 different brands and retailers that are available on that platform. They actually kind of provide us with, with thousands of extra brands because they, you know, they have relationships and that all pulls together. The app is set up just as tinder but for clothes so consumers browse through products saying i like it don't like it like it don't like it to date we've now generated over 620 million customer opinions on over 4 million products so what we do with that is that yes for the consumer we're like let's find you great products and you know get you a great deal on those products because anything that you say that you like if it drops in price you get a push notification to kind of pull you back into it but what we realized really quickly was that all of that data had a huge amount of value to the wider sort of retail landscape mm -hmm. which was to basically say using that information we can predict trends we can pr predict future performance we can benchmark brands and retailers against each other so we then built a suite of tools that allow us to help fashion brands and retailers improve gross margin improve performance improve their overall sort of business sort of attitudes to the consumer well how so far, what we do next how many years in till you realized because obviously the original idea was to be tinder for shopping and i'm guessing was that mm. to, i mean i'm saying i'm guessing that was more to sell product so when did the so, kind of being so I, I kind of always push back on the word pivot because i'm like i don't think we ever really pivoted like we always saw the value in the data and we've kept all the data from day one that we were generating around products but you have to get to a certain stage before you can do anything about the, that the, that data and use any value i often speak to people where they're like oh, i've got this data like it must be really valuable to someone and it's like data is hugely valuable but you need to have the data at scale. Like, you know, you need to have a lot of data before you can start to monetize it. And secondly, it has to have a value to someone. Like not all data is equal. You know, the thing around our data is it's led by the consumer. So that's really, really powerful. And we've kind of built systems that allow us to kind of predict what's gonna happen next, not just what's happened before or what's happening right here, right now. Mm -hmm. What I often kind of say to people is that, you know, our business is kind of built on stages. So there's five different stages of the business. Stage one is you need to build something that collects data and kind of make a really great consumer experience having a great consumer experience is totally vital to everything that we do because the consumer needs to love using our product and kind of keep coming back to it so we get people like free delivery make it really easy to find products discounts these sorts of different things stage two is that you need to basically get as many people as you can to use your product to build a massive data pool so that's then a you know a really big marketing task and you know happy to talk about some of the things that we've done around that stage three is you then need to, to figure out how to monetize that data and that's like a stage that we probably made some missteps with in terms of this is how we utilize data with people or we can try this one and then we eventually found you know some products that just really really worked stage four is the one that we're in now and that's probably you know six years to get to stage four which is then basically saying right how do we use this data with partners to kind of monetize it and and really make an impact in their businesses and a lot of people when we talk to them we talk about how do we improve gross margin uh, and kind of track 
back against that in terms of success. And then the final stage is then how do you take this to other verticals or other countries and, and do this in other sorts of different places. To do that uh, as a company, we've now grown into 26 people uh, and we've raised uh, just about £6 million to do it as well. So it takes a lot to be able to get to the stage in terms of building a B2C to B kind of data business. So can you tell us a bit more about that journey? Because obviously you're well known in retail now, you're doing some heavy duty things there. I mean, <laughs> where did this all come from? There's a lot of success, there's a lot of good things, but like, where did your interest in retail come from? Where did the idea from Malsey come about? I mean, what was the journey to get here? So the kind of journey in our focus was that there is a huge, like retail is a massive industry. Like in the UK, you're talking tens of billions of pounds spent every single year on fashion retail. And within that, it's not really changed hugely over the last you know, 10, 20 years. It's changed in some ways in the sense of kind of, you know, people moving online, these sorts of different processes. But as you know yourself, Johnny, is like the buying and merchandising processes of most fashion businesses are still very similar to how they were 20 years ago which is normally what did we sell before what do we think we're going to sell now and then a couple of people make a decision and what we kind of saw really quickly in this sector was that that is a potential massive failure point for any business because you are then only as good as the people who are making those decisions and often those decisions are being made with very very little data so that's why we thought that actually what we could do is that we could introduce data and insight into that and make those decisions more powerful. So combine all that kind of retail knowledge and that retail sort of that, that retailer gut, as people say, with real consumer feedback and real consumer insight to make those decisions significantly better. So yeah, I, for don't, us, I don't mean to keep pushing because I mean, this is like a very good, here's Mosley, here's what we do and stuff. I'm more interested in getting into the Cali Russell thing. You keep saying we did this, we did that. How about you? Like, <laughs> what were you doing before? How did you end up getting interest in retail? Why was Mosley an idea? Were you doing something before? I mean, the journey to get to the, so, the company is great, but I'm going to have to ask you to break down the walls a wee bit. And Johnny, I, I've been I've been interviewed by some pretty tough people over the years, but this is that's that this is brittle. There you go, like just pushing me hard early doors. So look, yeah, my story, you know, if I kind of roll up further past that point is so I graduated Dundee University uh, with a degree in politics I left that and went and worked for a public affairs company so kind of doing like PR that sort of work there uh, a really great firm like one of the top firms in Scotland one of the top firms in the world like I graduated during the financial crash so there wasn't a huge number of opportunities but I started like my grad job like the day after my grad ball I'm not gonna lie I was still massively hungover when I went into that first day but that's where I started off I worked there for like six months and realized that despite the massive economic shock the country was in because of all the financial kind of crash and stuff, I didn't really enjoy doing that job and I wasn't ready to kind of work in a serious environment like that in the sense of being like, right, there's your career, there's your path, like go for it sort of idea. So after six months, I decided to, to call it quits. Uh, handed in my notice and I went and started my very first business. So my first business uh, was called Student Punch and basically we made like an online only student magazine for Scotland uh, and we built that up to like I think like 5,000 readers a week. We had some really great sponsors. It was a really cool little business but it was a total lifestyle business. Yeah. I'm not going to lie, like I got to go and interview some of my favourite bands like a couple of nights a week, write about it, you know, enjoy a gig and then that was kind of life. So I did that for like 18 months and then 
and decided that this was never going to grow past this point. It made a little bit of money, but not a huge amount of money, mm. uh, and decided to try to go and do something else. Was the next thing I went into was it just you? Yeah, one 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 person okay. one person team. Uh, then the next thing that I went into was uh, an idea called recommended buy. So I basically outsourced development of like a tech platform and it was like a recommendation platform. So for example, Johnny, you've got like an amazing Wi-Fi, amazing like broadband deal. You recommend that broadband deal to me and you get a better deal and I get a better deal. So it was kind of like referrals sort of marketing sort of idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I outsourced it to a tech company didn't do my research on them, didn't really understand how to build a tech product. It was an absolute disaster. They were like six months late, over budget. Just like by the time that like I actually got a, a platform from them, I absolutely hated the idea and I hated like working on it. So I basically binned all of that. And now I had like six months money to live on after kind of scrapping that all off and went, right, I'm going to go try like the Malsy sort of concept. So I threw up like a single page website marketed it so i went and like promoted it through like a bunch of bloggers a bunch of influencers got uh three and a half thousand signups in about i think six weeks and that was enough to show traction so then i raised a little bit of investment on that brought on my co-founders and then they started and they're techies so they they started like building on that gotcha. uh, on the platform and then building that piece out <laughs> and we kind of divided it out to say i'll do this piece and that bit there to jump in a wee bit because like that's why i love sitting down and interviewing entrepreneurs because you're talking about all these different things you tried, you learned you didn't like, and then you got to the point where there was only six months left. I mean, what kept you going? Was there any points where you were like, oh, maybe entrepreneurship isn't right. Maybe I should go back to a desk job for a wee while. Any moments of doubt? Look, you have moments of doubt all the time. Do you know what I mean? Like people just used to keep telling me that I'd be like awful at working for other people. So like I had to kind of go and do my own thing because like I just, I'm just not good at doing the other option. So that kind of forces you into it. I think like when you're young, like you can take so much more risks. So if you think about it, like even now, like both you and me, like we don't have dependence, like we don't have that same sort of stress. So you can take bigger risks. I'm, I'm a really big advocate of like getting people to start businesses like as soon as they leave university. So like don't go and take the grad job and like build your salary up and then have to give that up because by that point you've got used to something. And then you're kind of like, it's much harder to kind of live in a different way. Whilst if you leave university, and you just go and try something, you never know what having more money is like. So you're willing to give it a shot for longer, kind of without anything else that kind of goes for it. So, you know, looking at it and that's it, there's definitely points, but those are the points where you make, you know, decisions. I often work on like, if I look back at that time, I used to work on like personal runway. So where you'd work on like a business's runway to say, I have this amount of time mm. to like achieve and hit the night sort of test point as you would like in a tech company that's raised investment. I would do it myself with like personal runway where I would basically be like, I've got this amount of money that's going to last me this amount of time. I need to make this work by this stage or I have to go get a job. Do you know what I mean? Like I have to go and do something else at that same sort of point. Mm. And that's like a nice way of doing it because it kind of crystallizes the mind and you're like, it has to work by this stage or it's over. You're going to go do something else. Do you still have that runway up to this point or since you're experiencing nice levels of success, you don't think about it or is it something? No, that's well, it's like in any sort of 
in any sort of venture backed tech company, which is what Malsey is, like you have to be a loss making business to kind of grow and like build what you're doing. So you're you're now where I was working when it was just me working through ideas, I was working on personal runway. I now work on business runway that says this is how much runway we've got. We have to achieve X, Y, and Z by this point. And that point might be, you know, another investment round. That might point might be, you know, what break even, that might point be acquisition. You don't, you know, it depends on whatever stage you're at, but you're then working on runway. I think, you know, personally for myself, like what is a really great driver and way of operating is having like, you need to have figured this out by X point. Like if it's open-ended, then you'll just drift your way through it. You need to have a cutoff point and having like a financial runway or a point where you need to make money from or something. That's mm. a really great crystallizing way of just focusing the mind that says, this is what we're going to go do. This is how we're going to go make impact to this stage. Can you remind me, when did Mosley start again? So we've been going since about 2014 in like our current sort of guys. Obviously, like the, the recommender stuff was before that. And actually, it's still kind of the same company, but we've just kind of obviously moved on because we never set up like a new company structure around that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, like it's now kind of been, yeah, about kind of seven and a half years of doing my own sort of stuff to get to this sort of point. Within that, I think, you know, when we talk about what we're trying to do, myself personally, is like our sort of whole offering doesn't really work unlike the small scale it only works at the big scale and like our whole sort of mission piece is to fundamentally change how retail works like it's fundamentally to go into really big enterprises and go there's an entirely new way of doing buying and merchandising and moving people from what i would call a push economy which is just this is what you're going to buy to a pull economy sort of piece and that takes that takes some time, takes a lot of convincing. It takes a lot of strength, I think, personally, to 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 battle with people and, and try to change people who've got a very entrenched view of how something should be done. Well, your learnings, I'm guessing, in retail, because Mosley was your first step into that world, mm -hmm. your learnings have come over that period of time. So Mosley is obviously kind of tailored to go in that direction, to be helping people use the data. So they're buying less stock being more environmentally friendly, not wasting stuff. And like you said, there's a lot of entrenched views. So how do you kind of handle that with these like 50, 60 year old people who've been doing this 30, 40 years? Like, it's like you said, it's an uphill battle. It's the adoption curve piece where, you know, within businesses, you'll find some people that just that totally get it and are driven by the business's success and will will change everything within their powers to make the business more of a success. You then come up against some people who've got like a totally entrenched view and they're not going to change their opinion easily in that sort of process. And then you've normally got like the most junior people in a business who are just like finding their way and like they want to try new things and kind of go kind of, you know, push themselves and like play with new technologies and all these sorts of stages. When you go into a business, you have to very quickly understand the people that you're dealing with, which camp are these people in? And then you have to navigate those sorts of different camps. I, I've often, someone, I can't remember who it was, someone pointed to me and sort of taught me really something that people are driven by one of two things, fear or greed. Like those are the two kind of key motivational drivers within a business. Either people do things because they do it out of fear or they do it because they're greedy. Not yeah. neither of those things is a bad thing, but that are the two of the kind of the emotions. So often figuring out what someone is, like are they driven by fear? Are they driven by greed? What is it? And then play to that. So like fit that into their same sort of offering, how to get to it. 
on the other side of that, some people will just not change. And it's sometimes okay to say, you're not going to change and I'm not going to waste my time trying to make you change. And I think one of my issues is probably, well, definitely is one of my issues, is that I'm not very good at doing that because I'm like, no, you should change. This is for the good of your business and trying to make people change who are just never going to change. I, you, just got, you just got to hold your hands up and just walk away and just be like, this is not going to be a deal. And I have gone back to like senior execs at retail businesses and literally said, I cannot help you, not because I don't think we can make an impact here, but your team doesn't want to be helped. And if your team doesn't want to be helped, if they're not going to change, this is going to just be a waste of your money, a waste of my time. So let's just call it quits and, and go our separate ways. Two questions from that. Not giving any names, is there people you tried to help who are now gone? Mm -hmm. uh, no, like, no, like, not really not yet. at all. Uh, not, not yet, but I think this is the thing within retail. And if, you know, if we're talking like pure play retail, is that it's like the story of like Polaroid or Kodak where their whole business model is linked to one thing, that as they were being disrupted, they refused to move to it, or Blockbuster, they refused to move to it, and that refusal to move to it does eventually kill them. So if you think about the traditional retail sort of offering, which is the powers in buying and merchandising, this is what I've got, this is what I'm going to sell to consumers, and it's entirely driven by the wants and needs and desires of that retail business. If you turn that on its head, in reality, the successes of businesses like Zara of boohoo, of misguided. The core thing with them isn't the fact that they're fast, is that they're driven by consumers. So fast fashion is actually about reacting to consumer needs and wants much quicker, doing things on small trial runs and like iterating your way through it, which is total alien to the traditional retail model because that is much more driven by this is what's going out there. Yeah. So it's about getting people to move to this concept of you know, I talked about it as either like the pool economy or actually it's like it's a consumer driven supply chain Can that you, you want to kind of get to. What the economy is? So, yeah. So, so the pool economy is that you're being pulled by your consumers to the solution. Whilst the push economy is this is the solution and I'm pushing it out to you at this point in time. So if you think about, you know, and when that comes to a retail example, the push economy is I have bought X number of this product and I've never talked to my consumers about whether they want this product, and I'm going to push it to them and say, this is what you want to buy. The pool economy is, I've talked to my consumers, I've listened to the consumers, I've really investigated it, and using all of the intel that provides me, I have bought Y product, because I know they're going to buy it, and I'm being pulled to this decision by the consumers in this whole sort of kind of process. It's, it's a very different way for some businesses to operate, but actually... It can be applied not just to retail, it can be applied to any sort of business approach. Mm -hmm. So if you're creating software, you know, in reality, you're talking to your users or you should be talking to your users. You should be engaging with them. You should be listening. That is a form of working in the pool economy compared to the traditional, I have built this, this is what you should buy sort of approach. So I think, you know, if, and especially just now whilst we're sitting talking in lockdown, the businesses to me that will succeed after coronavirus and after COVID will be pool economy businesses. It will be people who move their business model to be much, much closer to their consumer and be pulled by their consumer compared to the people who are still driven by, well, this is what they should want to buy, or I know that they should buy this, or this is the best thing for them. It's about getting that balance right. Well, that's interesting. I want, I want to take a step back to kind of what you said about places like Zara and Boohoo. It's like you said, fast fashion. These guys are on it from a consumer basis. Like they've mm. got a nail on the head with that. But maybe Zara not so much. 
but I know like Boohoo, you know, it's one-off fashion. People buy things, wear it once mm-hmm. and stuff. So yeah, they've got it down. They're making the consumer happy. But on the other hand, they're causing all the problems that people say is in clothing retail. You know, factories getting massive orders and one hit. You know, I always believe like mm. the customer what they want. But I mean, it's counter to Mosley's messaging, which, you know, you guys mm. want there to be less waste, want there to be less... Yeah. You know, that's why, you know, we, we don't really work with, you know, very close. We don't provide data to really fast fashion companies because like that doesn't fit within how we operate and, and the same sort of approach to it. I also think that a lot of like that sort of story piece that kind of comes across is again driven from slightly the wrong sort of place. I think we should talk much more. It's very easy to say, oh, consumers have only bought that once and then they've not worn it again because it was cheap to start with. Yeah. If you think if you know if we went through your wardrobe, Johnny, I'm sure we'd find, you know, as well as some amazing suits. So I mean, I'm sure you'll find some products that you've bought from other retailers that you bought at a discount and you've worn once or twice because you didn't really want to buy them. You bought them because there was a really good discount on them. Like I know I'm really bad for that on trainers that I'll see a pair of trainers and I'm like, oh, like it's only like 30 quid. I'll buy those, like they're Nike, that's fine. I'll wear them a couple of times and then like I don't really go them again. And the reason why I bought them was that they were cheap because they were discounted and you, you need to tackle that. The fast fashion guys don't have that same sort of problem. Yes, they're like going in at like a super low entry price to kind of to shift things through. I think a lot of them now are trying to do stuff around like the recycling sort of schemes. Mm. I think Boohoo introduced some stuff that's quite clever in that same sort of space. But it's all about how do you like that to the consumer and how does that all kind of come together? And it's also about, well, what is your model? Are you buying lots of stuff, selling a little bit of it at full price and then discounting the rest? which is potentially just as damaging as you bought all this stuff and you sold it all pretty cheaply. Uh, So which of these is worse? I think that's a really hard question. No, nice. And I think talking about fast fashion is a good sort of segue into what you're working on right now with Malsey. Yeah. So I think, again, this comes down to, you know, if we're talking about like as a business owner or like a business exec at this point in time, is that you can continue doing what you would normally do in a period of crisis and that's probably not right for most businesses. You probably have to change some of your behaviors. So when all this sort of coronavirus stuff hit, we like had a bit of a talk at Mozzie, we talked through, and I'm a big fan of like, let's talk about problems and solutions as a team so that we can look at different things. And if you've got a good team, having that sort of input is, is a really, really powerful thing to do. So what we kind of did was that we looked at everything out there and we, we decided to focus on two separate areas. Firstly, we were like, right, this is a point where people should be accelerating towards the economy so how do we help people to do that how do we partner up with people how do we kind of engage with people and appreciate that they're probably not at the point yet where they want to go and buy something but we can help them all take steps towards that and hopefully then be when they're ready to do that to be their partner of choice and we've done that with lots of different people like you know just for example like before this call i I'd like the CEO of like a luxury brand where we just had like half an hour talking about what they were trying to do. And then we were talking about pushing the pool economies. And then like, he was like, right, can we do like a session in two weeks with their like head of brand and head of marketing and like head of like kind of design so that we could talk about those ideas with them and hear their sort of stories as well. So we're keeping pushing on with that. But on the other side of that, one of the things that we kind of found was how amazing the supply chain is around the world so so many of the goods that we wear are produced for us in other countries and i think the thing that some people don't think about is that if we stop buying goods here or if our supply chain kind of breaks down here then what's the knock-on effect in other places 
And actually what we saw was all these news reports kind of coming out about various different countries. And one of those kind of really stuck with us, which was that over $2 billion worth of stock has been cancelled in Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh, 84% of exports are actually directed to garment trade for Western countries. Mm. 4 million people are employed in that trade and 2 million of those people have lost their jobs in the past eight weeks. And this is in a country where there's no safety net, there is no social security, there is no furlough scheme. These people all of a sudden are have nothing. And yeah. to us, we were like, there's something really truly awful about that. That you know, because our economy's kind of stalled on this retail front, that it has that knock-on effect. Mm -hmm. So what we decided to do was we decided, could we do some good here? So what we've been working on, and by the time this comes out, hopefully it'll be live, is a product called Lost Stock. So loststock.co or loststock uh, underscore on Twitter. And basically what we have done is we have made like a fashion box concept. So what you do is you buy a box of clothes for about 35 pounds. And in that box, you will get clothes that is are worth double that value that have been selected for you based on some information that you give us. So your size, your kind of your age, your kind of how do you feel about colors, these other sorts of different questions. Those products are coming directly from manufacturers in Bangladesh that we've done deals with to buy stock that has been abandoned by brands or retailers. But for every box that gets bought, we are able to support a family in Bangladesh for a week. So for a family of four, we're able to feed them for every box that's bought. And basically our mission with Lost Dog is that in the first month, we want to support 5,000 families. And actually by the end of the year, we want to support 100,000 families for at least one week. Uh, and actually not do it through pure charity where you know we know that you know at a minute in time, people you know might not have extra money to, to kind of give to charity, but they are still buying clothes. So the idea being here is to just change your consumer habits slightly because you know what? You get to do something amazingly good and help a family in Bangladesh. Secondly, you get a great deal. So you're going to get for £35, you're going to get £70 worth of clothes. And then thirdly, actually, you're going to stop this product ending up in landfill or being burnt or, you know, the ways that kind of people get rid of excess stock and excess inventory when there's so much of it kind of floating around at this same sort of point. So we're really, really excited about putting that out there into the world. We've got to sell about 10,000 boxes to make it worthwhile, to, to make it work and like make the logistics work around it. And we're being supported by Royal Mail on that, which is great. Uh, but we're, we're excited. You know, it's something that's really interesting. And hopefully that it's such a great cause, people can kind of get behind and, and kind of build that through. It's kind of like what I said about before, like I love talking to people like yourself who just come up with these ideas because it's like you said, some people don't know about the supply chain stuff. I mean, so what, this idea just came from, you saw an article about struggling people in Bangladesh and then you guys were like, what can we do to help? Yeah, so I, I think you just obviously, from our perspective is that we know we know the supply chain, we know the B2C piece. So for us, we were just like, let's, let's go and give this a try. I'm a big believer that the way that you validate ideas is getting them in front of people and having a conversation. There's no point in spending months and months building something if you don't have consumer or whoever it is that's buying it on board at a really early enough point. It's the whole sort of minimal viable product sort of idea. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, really embracing that and everything that we're trying to do. What I would say, though, on, on minimal viable product, and this is something I say to so many people and is maybe one of my top pieces of advice to anyone, is minimal viable product is, is such an important thing. But alongside that is minimal viable personality, which is that when you make 
anything, you need to give it a personality. Like it needs to kind of kind of shine that piece through. There's a really great blog post uh, on avc.com called Minimum Viable Personality. And it's written like a cartoon strip. And it's like the weirdest cartoon strip you'll ever read. But the fundamental message within it is amazing, which is that people buy into personalities. And when you're selling something, whether it's B2C or B2B, having a personality in your product will fundamentally help it come across better and we'll get more people excited and involved in it. So with this and, and the whole sort of offering is that, you know, the idea that we've gone with with Lost Stock is, is to make that personality and tell that story, but it's telling a story of the impact that we're kind of trying to create and everything that kind of comes together. And fingers crossed that that's a story that enough people will get involved with, enough people will get excited with, and we can reach our goals of, you know, helping hopefully 100,000 families in Bangladesh by, by the end of the year. So, so, so this is a bit different. The direction I thought you were going there with the brand having a personality, I thought you meant like people look at Nike and they think sporty, this and that. So I thought you were saying Lost Stock, it was good cause, good people, but you're saying it's mm. more about the story within it. It's, 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 about, it's about both. Like the thing about these is it's about both. But a lot of you know, one of the things that, you know, I often find myself speaking to, like when people come with to me with a new idea or I'm talking about with someone about their business is when you try to get into that story, like that has to be really clear and it has to be really clear, really, really simple. So like the lost stock story, like we've only been in for three weeks, but I think we've got a really strong clarity of like why we're doing this, like the impact that we're trying to make, the beliefs that we have around it and just really kind of portraying that and putting that out there to say, this is something that we really want to do because we think it's going to have an amazing impact and we want people to shop in a slightly different way to enable that, to support that piece through. Two last questions then, because I know we're running out of time. You were talking about minimum viable product. Now, you were saying you guys saw the issues going on in Bangladesh, and you were like, here's the problem. And you were like, you need to have a really good minimum viable product to get people to buy in and to take the steps to actually create something. A lot of people listening, a lot of people out there have these great ideas, but then they maybe don't have the confidence to go out and tell the story to get people to buy in and stuff. So what do you think first steps they should take? What should they be doing to get in front of the right people and get buy-in? So on the confidence point is, and as the starting place of that is ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen here? Like if you go and talk to people, but what's the worst thing? Like, and once you answer that question, you'll realize that the worst thing is, is not normally that bad. Do you know what I mean? So you can get over that confidence thing pretty quickly about what, what could I have to risk here? What's the worst thing that can happen? How do we kind of push on from this at the same stage? The next stage is identify people out there that you think could help you with this, that you want to talk to and that you feel would be excited by it. And then go and have that conversation. You know, if I think back to the very start of Malsy, I started the first, like, I think, yeah, the first, like, three weeks of Malsy, I had like a pitch deck and that was it. I had nothing, didn't build anything, we didn't write any code. We didn't write any actual code for Malsy until we'd signed up three and a half thousand people. Right. So that shows you that you can go and check demand, you can go and do all these things without having to go and get stuck into lots of different points. There's amazing tools out there, like, you know, if it's Shopify, if it's LaunchRock, you know, all these sorts of different things. And there's amazing design tools that can help you tell a great story through a couple of slides to get people excited about it, to test that market before you go full hog into it. So last question, which I ask everyone, the key piece of advice that you think people need to know because you get like you said you get a lot of people coming up to you asking you 
for advice, mm. telling you their ideas. What have you just consistently found people need to hear? I think there's a few things within that. So I don't have, I don't have a go-to piece of advice. Like the three things that I often kind of come back to people, and I've touched on two of them already, which is number one, ask yourself, if you're, if you're just starting or if you're trying to decide whether you should do something, ask yourself the question, what is the worst thing that can happen if I try to do this? And if it's not that bad, it's probably worthwhile just going and going to do it and seeing what happens as you go through it. Because you'll only know what happens as you get into it and as you kind of get stuck in. The second piece is, is that the story of what you're doing is, is vitally important. It's the story that gets people excited. You know, and when I say story, I mean, what are the benefits of this product, not are, what are the features of this product? That's what people get excited about. That's what people kind of get bought into. And then the final point is that people invest in lines and not dots. And that's something totally stolen from Mark Zuster, the VC, which is that the idea that you turn up and you pitch to someone and then they just go, yeah, let, let's just do it straight here. Whether that's investment, whether that is, you know, they'll give you their business, whatever it is that it looks like. In most cases, that's not true. People invest not in the dot, but then they invest in the line that you create with them. So it's going and speaking to people and saying, hey, this is what we're working on now. And in six months time, we're going to be here and I'm going to come back to you and speak to you at this same point. You know, I just, I talked about the guy that I was speaking to this afternoon. That's yeah. someone that I've known for 18 months and I've never like managed to win their business, but that's because they're not ready to kind of make the changes that they want to kind of, that I, I think they should be making. And it's about creating the line with them to give them that confidence that they should move into that same sort of zone. So, you know, those are the three kind of key pieces is think about how you make lines with people. Uh, think about that story in a lot of depth and also don't hold yourself back with worry, you know, especially in times of crisis that are happening here just now, like sit and say, what is the worst thing that can happen? If it's not that bad, then do you know what? Why don't you just give it a try? Perfect. Callie, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure, Johnny. Sorry it took so long for us to get it to this point and that we had to do it over technology. But as I say, as a final point, please download the Mozzie app. Secondly, please check out loststock.co and consider buying a box of clothes to help a family in Bangladesh. Guys, I hope you loved it. That's the end of the episodes. I hope you got some takeaways. I hope you find Callie's story interesting. So please, please, please do check out loststock.co. That's loststock.co and treat yourself to a box and then help a worker over in Bangladesh get their food for a week. Hopefully next time you listen to an episode of the podcast, lockdown restrictions will be eased got a few more guests lined up for the moment that happens so we'll be bringing you new episodes soon take care of yourselves and see you next time